odds are, as you've read research or news stories on the efficacy of particular medications, trends in aging, or issues related to minority health, you've likely encountered the work of researchers specializing in biostatistics. The University of Alabama Birmingham, or UAB's biostatistics department, explains that those interested in the subject study, quote, how data, population studies, and health intersect, end quote. That intersection is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Lloyd Edwards. Edwards is the chair of biostatistics at the University of Alabama, Birmingham's School of Public Health. Lloyd, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me as your guest. As I was reading the introduction, I uh, shared the way your department sort of explains what people who study biostatistics do. How do you, when people ask you what it is you do, how do you explain what you do? Uh, you know, there's different explanations, but oftentimes when I'm explaining it to lay people, I just tell them it's the application of statistics to biomedical data. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because you have to try to keep a, keep it simple enough for people to understand. We know it's a lot more complex than that. So, Lloyd, how did you become a biostatistician? What what attracted you to the field? I stumbled into it. Um, <laughs> Uh, like most people do. I was a math major uh, in undergraduate uh, physics and economics minor. Uh, And I asked my professor when I was graduating uh, what I wanted to go to a field that I could easily go from academia to industry if Mm. I had to. Uh, And he said statistics was it. So I, I originally went into math stat uh, and then I discovered biostatistics from a friend. Uh, and when the bio, uh, my friend told me that you didn't need to have any biology background, I knew it was the field for me. <laughs> <laughs> so did you did you go immediately into to work as a biostatistician in an academic setting when you're done, or did you you know what what were kind of the the, the twists and turns as you got to where you where you are now? Uh, well, uh, when I got a uh, master's in mathematical statistics from the University of Maryland College Park, I went and worked for three and a half years, uh, and that kind of set my vision on things. I worked for TRW Defense Systems doing anti-submarine warfare, and I realized I really didn't want to uh, apply my mathematical skills to, yes, say, warfare. Oh. Uh, so when I got my Ph.D. in uh, biostatistics, I knew that I wanted to apply my skills to uh, health-related stuff. I wanted to have a positive impact. Uh, so I got my degree at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and I stayed for 25 what, years. What, what a great place to go for graduate study. And it was a great place. Uh, fabulous place to be. The exposure you get, uh, the problems that you get to see, the people that you meet. Uh, and, you know, if I hadn't gone there, I don't know if I would have met you, John. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a loss for me. <laughs> Lloyd, I have a question uh, just about some terms. So you've been involved in longitudinal studies and longitudinal data. Can you talk a little bit 
for those of us who don't really know what that is, can you talk a little bit about what longitudinal data might is for a lay okay. person? <clears throat> longitudinal data is repeated measures on the same variable outcome over time. Uh, in today's society, in today's technology, we now can collect and store and keep track a vast amount of data. And part of that is following individuals over time. Uh, you know, how repeatedly you, you may want to do it. You can follow them for years. And the question is, how do you now extract information from the individual and also the population? Well, repeated measures and longitudinal data, new longitudinal data analysis techniques allow you to uh, estimate uh, 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 trajectories for both the population, the group, uh, you know, like gender and, and race, but also individuals in that group. Uh, and that's uh, a newfound thing that's found in all sorts of applications everywhere. Can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, variables or factors that alter that kind of data over time? You mentioned specifically maybe gender and race, how our attitudes might change over time. Uh, well, it, it, it's interesting because when I say an outcome uh, over time, just say uh, a lung function, you may measure that every day over time uh, for, for however. But we don't necessarily uh, think about what we consider static variables changing over time. In today's society, you know, we have uh, gender that changes over time. Race yeah. can change over time. If you're from a mixed race couple, uh, you could uh, uh, claim one heritage in one year and another heritage in another year. Uh, if you're doing a pharmaceutical uh, uh, company study and you say you set the gender and somebody changes their gender over time, those are some of the more complicating things that can then affect how you're looking at that outcome. So Lloyd, one of the things that I, I think is probably maybe the most familiar example when, when, I, when I'm asked to give examples for, for, for uh, longitudinal data would be like the growth curves that, that people see when they take their, their kids to pediatricians, you know, sort of plotting, plotting their, uh, you know, a child's position and height and weight on those curves. Uh, you know, can you think of other examples that would be kind of common and familiar? Uh, uh, the new technology we have with these devices are opening up uh, different types of data, like continuous time glucose measurements mm. or 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure measurements, where you're continually taking measurements on an individual on a specific day for 24 hours. Um, I'm involved in this uh, uh, study where we're proposing to take continuous time glucose measurements and analyze it, and that's complicated. You know, we're talking about taking measurements every minute over a 24-hour wow. period. Mm. So you have a massive, large amount of data that's very, very complicated. I looked at one of those trajectories, uh, and it's challenging, to say the least. So you have a number of things that we're doing in daily. Uh, you think about uh, this Fitbit uh, technology we have that can, you know, you can count your uh, steps every day, you can plot that out. So we have a vast amount now of opportunities to do repeated measures or longitudinal studies. Lloyd, how important is work like this for public health? 
programs or schools or I mean how 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 helpful is this compared to maybe a one shot study that might look you know at something at one moment in time having this kind of continuous data available to you. Uh, the problem is one shot in time is just that it's a biased look. Uh, it may not show you the trajectory over time. Mm -hmm. I uh, saw, I had a study doing weight loss where weight loss will uh, decrease over uh, a short amount of time. Then it goes flat where people don't lose any more weight. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't look at that entire trajectory, you presume that if someone stays on that weight loss plan, they will just continue to lose weight. And that's just not the case. I mean, we, we've seen that in reality. So uh, one shot in time is informative, but it gives you just can give you a wrong picture of how something develops over time. Uh, you know, every disease has a time course uh, involved with it, well, mm -hmm. most of them do. So it's better to know what that uh, time course is like and that uh, process is like. So I have a question sort of related to, to the example that John gave, but something that we talked about. So I have a, I have a grandson who's five, who's mm -hmm. always been on 50, 50th percentile for weight and 90th percentile for height. Can you predict anything about how tall this guy's <laughs> going to be if, if he stays there? And those have been pretty consistent because we get that report every, you know, every few months. Yeah, John, you can the, weigh in on we, this, too. <laughs> yeah, we have the equations for that. Uh, when it comes to growth uh, 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 height and weight height charts, we, we, we pretty much have that down pat. I mean, they have all types of instances. For example, my son, my youngest son, both my sons are 6'6". Six, six. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, those growth charts meant nothing to me because they were both off the charts. Yeah. Uh, uh, there are areas even for us where they're like they're so rare that you don't you can't chart it well mm -hmm. uh in your son's case you know 50th uh percentile weight he must be pretty slim uh yes, but you know uh, uh they have those trajectories pretty well yeah. so yes <laughs> i think what richard wants to know is is his grandson going to grow up and be a big mpa star and take care of his grandpa <laughs> in his old age <laughs> You know, it's interesting with boys because you have growth spurts. I knew I had it. And yes. Both my sons had it. Uh, and you just don't know, you know, the complication with genetics and everything else. Uh, both my boys uh, from the ninth, eighth to the ninth to the tenth grade sprouted like six inches. Yeah. Uh, and I remember they used to be so tired. They complained about their joints hurting. And I just laughed to myself and said, yeah, that's Mother Nature. <laughs> You grow that big that fast, you know your ligaments has to stretch. Your body is metamorphosis. <laughs> but yes, your son should be fine. And, okay, and, is... and again, with today's technology, you know, we give him a few steroid shots. He'll be good. <laughs> hey, I, I want to follow up on on some of those those Internet of Things new equipment and new measurements that you described, like the glucose measurements over time and and other kind of continuous monitoring data. Is were these part of a, an outcome looking? at something like diabetes or some other types of disease? And, and, and how are you going to use these types of continuous measurements over time for, for doing that analysis? The one where uh, I'm involved in trying to propose is actually looking at pregnant women oh. and how uh, their glucose uh, is oh, affected yeah. during the day um, because they have some complications if they do have diabetes-related or high glucose. 
in, in that regard. So we're going to use it to try to monitor what is uh, how their glucose or diabetes uh, uh, may be affected. And you could imagine that if uh, we have the trajectory right and measuring right, that if it's do done it, doing continuously, that there could be alerts or alarms if things start getting high. Mm -hmm. Instead of waiting till, you know, there's danger and you're going to the emergency room, you could have an alert that says, listen, you're about to go too high on this glucose, take your insulin mm -hmm. or, or intervene in some type of way. Same thing with 24-hour uh, ambulatory uh, 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 blood pressure measurements. If one knows that the blood pressure is uh, is about to spike, you can do that if you're continuously monitoring. Otherwise, you have to wait till you collected all the data, wait till the next week when somebody's downloaded the data and said, oh, you had a spike. <laughs> you really don't want to wait. It's too late. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking biostatistics with UAB's Lloyd Edwards. Now, Lloyd, uh, health news tends to be one of those things that um, gets covered a lot, uh, particularly on broadcast news, but also, uh, you know, on online and newspapers. I, what is the most frustrating thing for you when you're reading news stories about um, about things related to biostatistics? What do you think? What do you think journalists um, get wrong most often? Oh, my goodness, because they, have to, <laughs> because they have to try to cannibalize what we're saying. They just tend to just not get it right. And plus, you know, we're uh, the people who are interpreting it or giving it the, the information aren't scientists themselves. So half the time we, we hear such wrong things mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it, it gets exasperating, but it's the uh, similar thing we face as statisticians with respect to manuscripts, writing manuscripts. Oftentimes when we're writing with a subject matter expert, they don't allow us to expand on the analytical technique that we're doing. Uh, and John knows oftentimes they'll try to hold us to one paragraph to explain something <laughs> very complex. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Oftentimes people shy away from the complexity. Uh, there's layers to things, but people, uh, the news want to report a uh, black and white situation. Well, there's a lot of gray area mm -hmm. when it comes to stuff like that. Uh, for example, uh, people will say that smoking causes cancer. However, there's really not a causal relationship there. Smoking is highly related to cancer because there are people who smoke who don't get cancer. Uh, lung cancer is what we're talking about. So uh, there, that's how the interpretations can be kind of uh, uh, wrong from journalists or anybody else. Yeah, I mean, I think that your, your comment about about shying away from complexity is 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 mm -hmm. really resonates, mm -hmm. and I I mean, I think we often see that in terms of kind of just the the the, the size of an effect without any sense of uncertainty. Without you know, there's often this uh, what I think of as almost this uh, overly strong sense of precision of what's being reported, as opposed to kind of sweeping under the rug some of the nuance. So, you know, what are some of the, th you have certain strategies when you try to, to convey the uncertainty or variability or, or kind of uh, nuance to a conclusion when you're working with investigators or when you're thinking about reporting this to the general public? Uh, oftentimes, I try to tell them to interpret some things cautiously. 
uh, you know, you get a p-value of 0.049 when the cutoff is 0.05, you know, they run into the bank with it. They're saying we have a significant result. Well, we're saying, no, it's not quite. Uh, you need to uh, uh, interpret it correctly. The other thing that gets me is that oftentimes people don't understand these are averages. These are means with some type of spread on them, uh, some type of range of values. But they'll talk about like a median or a mean, but you know, there's a spread that people can fall within. So it gets frustrating uh, to not be able to talk about those nuances on a certain uh, 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 interpretation. So this is a, you know, your comment about journalists and looking at some of your abstracts, I always try to imagine as a former journalist and a journalism <laughs> professor, um, how would I explain this? So some of your abstracts, you talk about uh, a linear mixed model. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about what that is and, and explain that to a journalist? Uh, the linear mixed model is basically an advanced analysis of variance technique that allows us to relax a number of complicating or restriction, restricting assumptions on a model. Uh, it is a model that contains both fixed effects and random effects. Uh, when I say fixed effects in terms of modeling, let's talk about fixed effects would be something like gender or mm -hmm. race. And then you have the random effects would be the individuals and the times that the individuals may have, because any individual may have different observations on different times. The, mix, the linear mixed model allows us to incorporate all those effects in, uh, but it's a very comple uh, complex mm -hmm. model because you're modeling two things. You're modeling both the mean portion of the curve and you're modeling the covariance, mm -hmm. how these variables co-vary with each other and how they're correlated. So it is a uh, fairly complex procedure that is hot. Man, it's hot. I actually understood that. It's making my career right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I actually understood that. Uh, okay. and that. And that ties directly to all your interests in longitudinal data. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, it does. Yeah, so that's uh, that whole repeated measures thing and worrying about mm -hmm. correlations and, you know, cross measurements within yeah. an individual. So, mm -hmm. yes. So that's yes. And, and one of the things is that that issue of variability, uh, as you well know, John, as a um, statistician, I wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for variability. Oh, amen. That's job security. Yeah, that's, that's job security. We embrace it. Now, I don't want that variability on the golf course, but in real life, yeah, let it vary. You know, and you know, trying to explain that variability uh, uh, impacts a lot of things, and that's complex. Uh, and we do it with complex language. The language that we generally do these types of models with and develop them with is matrix theory and matrix language. Well, not everybody has that type of background. Uh, sure. So it can get complex. Uh, for example, you, you can't know uh, uh, what we mean by a covariance matrix if you don't know what a matrix is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, one of the things I'm curious about, what's been the, the most interesting problem that you've worked on over your career? Uh, interesting enough, it was the application of the linear mixed model to premature infant data. 
it was an eye-opening experience for me but because we were trying to get the mixed model out in the real world. Uh, and there was a great reluctance for uh, a number of entities to, uh, you know, embrace it. Well, what so was the outcome, were, Lloyd? Uh, the outcome were sleep-wake states uh, for premature infants. What does uh, that mean, sleep-wake status? Uh, when a child is asleep, they would make uh, certain measurements in terms of, let's say, rapid eye movement and whether they had active sleep or REM sleep. Uh, it, I, I could, I don't have the explicit definition. Oh, no worries. Uh, but were you comparing but, them to non-premature babies to sort of see if there's a difference between them? Uh, they were uh, comparing premature infants from uh, one cohort to another. Okay. okay. One time cohort. Okay. Because mm -hmm. technology, even for them, changed over time. So they wanted to see whether one cohort that was studied earlier with mm -hmm. their techniques was different than another cohort oh, okay. uh, that came later where the technology had uh, supposedly gotten better. Uh, and it was interesting because in trying to publish the paper, we had a lot of resistance. And the resistance was from the person who had a technique that they didn't want us to you. Oh. They, they did not want us to get the mixed model out there because it would have wiped their technique out. Mm, so we battled with that for a little while and then finally overcame. Uh, it, but it's a classic case also of how uh, these types of things are discovered. Here I am as working on it from the theoretical side. Um, one of my professors gave a talk, the, my senior professor, Ronald Helm, gave a talk and uh, one of the nurses sat in there and she knew nothing about mixed models or anything like that, but she knew she had repeated measures data. And she came to us, she said, can you do that thing to my data? Lloyd, I'm going to go back to the journalist question because you clearly are frustrated with journalistic coverage of, of medical stuff. I, as a former science and medical reporter, would also say I am also frustrated. But what advice would you have for a reporter who's working on a deadline, who doesn't have a lot of space in their copy or their broadcast story, to to go as in depth as they as they could, as or as I think a lot of us would like them to do? What advice would you have for a journalist to be able to communicate the complexity of something uh, in a short amount of time when it comes to health data? Uh, to work with that person and ask them explicitly because that's something we train on also. Yeah. If the journalist were to tell us, could you explain this in three or four sentences as to a lay person, then we could give it to them. Yeah. But oftentimes they're asking us questions. We're responding from our professional uh, uh, side and we're giving them the, the, the full Monty. Yeah. <laughs> but if they told us they needed three or four sentences just to summarize something, we would give it to them. So if journalists would just work with us yeah. in that regard and be more explicit, sometimes, uh, you know, you have the feeling that they're working in a gotcha type of scenario uh, mm -hmm. to just to see if you can say something provocative mm -hmm. that they could take to run with it. But, well, I'm, I'm wondering from the, you know, the stat side of this is just the, the willingness of a lot of the stat community to be such collaborators, mm -hmm. you know, and also the, the, the willingness to kind of not do the technical work and, and kind of do this type of outreach and extension and partnership. Do you think there are barriers for that? Uh, yes, it is, John, because we're in the field of introverts. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, I was thinking that's how I describe you, Lloyd. <laughs> I say John's not very introverted either. I would just like to state for the record. Sorry. I'm an introvert. Yeah, I'm yeah, forced to I'm be too. an extrovert, but I'm an introvert. Uh, half the time, we don't want to talk to people. <laughs> no, amen, brother. <laughs> if I had my dithers, I would sit in my office eight hours and not talk to anyone. <laughs> And the other funny thing, uh, for example, I'm trying to get my department more uh, visibility. So to try to do that, I'm uh, asking all my faculty to do a taping uh, to put up on our website. Man, it's taken me a year to try to get somebody to step up. (laughs) Now, none of them wants to be taped. Mm -hmm. So I've had to pull rank and say, okay, this is how the schedule is going to go. We are introverts. Uh, and we just, it's, it, it's something that we need to get away from because we're the ones that should be uh, and can be the best at explaining our, uh, our conclusions and what we're doing. So and you we have to work at that. So you talked a little bit there about being a department chair, and I've been a department chair. John's a department chair now. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about when you're recruiting graduate students, uh, what kind, what are you, wh- who are you looking for? What, what kind of background, what kind of, you know, how do you, how do you make those kinds of decisions? Well, uh, biostatistics is a mathematical discipline, but we're part art and part science. Uh, so number one, 99% of our uh, 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 recruits are math majors or math minors um, because they have to be able to get past the mathematical mm-hmm. side. But we're also looking at other things. Uh, do they have balance? Uh, can they communicate? Because if they can't communicate, that's a central part of what we do. Uh, uh, do they have a sense of wanting to do exactly the type of work that we do? And that's applications type of work. Uh, that's kind of dirty work, mm-hmm. you know, is uh, rewarding and it actually pays pretty well, too. <laughs> but as a math, and you've got to understand the types that you're talking about. We're talking about people with math backgrounds that are introverts. Some of those other aspects they don't care about. You know, they don't care about the necessarily the communication because you spent your whole life not doing that to a group of people. So we look for characteristics uh, that they can grow. We generally talk to all of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we can get a sense because uh, nowadays it's not enough to be like uh, an Einstein if you can't communicate with anybody. Mm -hmm. Well, Lloyd, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Thank you so much for being here today. Are we finished already? We are. We are. We got to stick to that time. Oh, what happened? That went pretty quickly. Okay. Thank you, guys. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for being here today. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check out our website, statsandstories.net, and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.